show. The no make it show. Yeah, uh-huh. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Here are two words that don't always set my heart beating faster. Infrastructure mm-hmm, and bipartisanship. But right now, this has my attention. So we need a strong plan for building back this country and we cannot get tangled in some longing for a lost unity that probably never really existed. Bipartisanship, how many times have I said this on the show? Bipartisanship is not the goal. A better life for most people is the goal. And that means a robust infrastructure plan. Bipartisanship is the goal for hacks, for politicos, for people who survive off of the political ecosystem. But politics is the game that they have to play to make people's lives better. Did they forget that part? Okay. So I'm glad to see Democrats, at least some Democrats, get this. The word is that Vice President Kamala Harris is putting together a plan to be passed by Democrats. And if Republicans want to join, well, bless their dear little capitalist hearts. They are welcome to. But Senator Centrist Joe Manchin, Republican in a name or Democrat in name only, (laughs) for Ian Slip, Joe Manchin is trying to put a bipartisan deal together, alternative deal. Of course he is. But if it turns out that, you know, this is just a way for Republicans to chop things up so we don't get done what we really need to get done, then to hell with bipartisanship if that's what his bill presents. So what do we need? We need clean energy, an electric grid to distribute it. We need internet access for everyone. We need bridges that don't fall into the river. And of course, roads that don't rip out the bottom of your car. And what about, what else do we need for the American people? Call it infrastructure, call it human capital, or just call it the right thing to do. Medicare for all. Childcare, so working parents can actually go to work. You know, universal pre-K. And how about Pell Grants for job training? And of course, protection for the right to unionize for everybody employed on any of the government's infrastructure projects. These are all wildly supported by Americans. The fact that Senate Republicans won't support them doesn't mean they don't have bipartisan support in this country. Here today is the Transportation Workers uh, Union leader talking to Vice President, uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris about the need for skilled union labor in rebuilding our infrastructure. To train our mechanics. Mm-hmm. Because too many times I've seen people lose their jobs because they get farmed out because they don't want to give their training to the, the, to the department or the, the place. So um, I'm, I'm happy to hear we got good union jobs. Um, not being contracted. We're going to help you keep our jobs here and grow. This is exciting for us. Um, so I'm excited to have, you know, the Biden-Harris administration working on all the things you have and with the uh, challenges we've dealt with with the virus. And, and I know there's challenges still moving forward. We still, you know, deal with it and we'll probably deal with it for a while. Now, and with this is we're excited. We was help, able to help people ride the buses, 
for free to go get their vaccination. Mm -hmm. So um, that was uh, some good we did here in the city. Um, and, and they did it actually in the state of Ohio. Troy, so, Troy, talk. So both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris seem to see that labor is central in rebuilding the infrastructure. And thank goodness that they're hearing labor leaders say these things to them and she's going out there and speaking to them. Um, Harris has explained, this is something that, that she said today, uh, that funding infrastructure beyond roads and bridges is not a political issue, but one that can spur economic growth and create jobs. That is what she said today which is why they are putting together a bipartisan plan that may have to be passed with 51 Democratic votes. That's what this is all about. All right, guys, this is a huge, huge, huge deal. We're gonna keep tracking it. Like we said yesterday with John Nichols, the moment seems to be making this administration. So if they're responding to the moment, it is on us as a movement to push them even further. We have an amazing show today. It is a Fem Friday. Uh, we're going to be talking about the committee show that is launching on Monday. Very excited to have Julia Doubleday here. She is deputy director of the committee. This is a very mysterious thing. So we're going to talk about it with uh, Julia in just a second. And then later we have Jamie Peck and Esperanza Fonseca on to talk about just some of the stuff that's happened this week. You know, no big deal. Just lots of things happening. All right. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. We are so excited to have Julia Doubleday here, who is deputy director of the committee. Uh, she was a campaign manager for Julia Oliver's congressional campaign in Texas 25th District. Uh, Julie was on last week. How funny. She also worked on Beto O'Rourke's 2018 campaign and Bernie Sanders' campaigns. You know, those campaigns, those just, just, just no big deal. Uh, Julia is part of the new committee show. Uh, so first off, Welcome, congrats, and I want to hear all about the show that uh, is going to be premiering here on Monday, everybody, 3 p.m. right here on this channel. You get three hours. That's some like real, oh, look at episode one, Rebel Scum, Global Tales of Insurgency. I am so excited for this. Thank you so much, Nomiki, and uh, thank you for having me as well. Yeah, we're really excited and uh, super grateful to you as well for, uh, you know, letting us piggyback on your on your program and uh, come in and borrow some time from your channel. So, um, yeah, we're super excited premiering Monday. We've been working really hard on it, and we're really excited to introduce you to the great lineup of guests we have uh, both next week and, and in the many weeks ahead. So this is... Um... Just to remind folks, this is an international focused show, which is incredibly important um, in moments of of global uh, right rising <laughs> movements. Um, Arun was on yesterday. Arun Chowdhury, of course, is 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 the main host of the show, and he we we briefly talked about Guatemala, and like it was a perfect example of just how how. I didn't even know I was in Guatemala last week or two weeks ago, and I didn't even understand the level of right wing leadership that was happening there. And I think this is an important show because people will learn about what's happening with the rising right. And this is the work that you guys do in off camera. Like some of the stuff I do off camera comes on the show, like from Fridays, big part of my life is matriarch. And so we have women on to talk about leftist women, um, intersectionality, et cetera. 
but you guys work in this space. And I think this is what's really interesting to me about the concept of the show. It's not just talking about international issues, but you're coming from a position of working on the ground, knowing the tactics that they use, knowing the tactics that work that don't, um, don't work. And you're going to be basically spilling the secrets <laughs> on the show, right? Well, yeah. Well, so that's the idea. I mean, in the last few years. Uh, I've been working for a run internationally. Uh, you know, both of us came out of U.S. politics, but over the last two or three years, uh, we've gone abroad. We've been working in the U.K. and Italy, Kosovo, Australia, um, kind of just spreading our wings. And what we've found is that there are these problems that really um, they span the entire globe. These problems like um, how neoliberal economics are not serving us, obviously climate change. Um, we're seeing the same issues pop up over and over again all over the globe. And it's sort of, um, you know, we're, we're fighting with one arm tied behind our back because we're using these sort of 18th, 19th century tactics to take on hmm. an enemy that is really in the 21st century or, you know, maybe further in the future. They're, they're absolutely not constrained by national borders. So when we talk hmm. about uh, corporate malfeasance, when we talk about offshoring, when we talk about trade deals that are, are written by multinationals, um, we're talking about issues that just simply can't be addressed uh, through domestic policy because mm. domestic policy is completely beholden um, to these multinational actors who are deciding essentially what economy lives and what economy dies. So we're all we're all sort of at gunpoint as we make our our domestic policy. I think that's really little understood in the U.S. I think um, for a lot of us, uh, it's just sort of election cycle, election cycle, election cycle. And there's so little time to understand what's happening internationally, what's happening beyond our borders. Um, and I would say that also extends to um, understanding global governing bodies. So things like the World Trade Organization, right. things like the IMF, People don't understand them and they like it that way. They don't really want everyone kind of figuring out what's going on. What does the IMF do? What's structural adjustment? All of this stuff sounds really yeah. dry, but once you dig into it, it's super, super interesting and is super critical if we want to create lasting change here and abroad. You know, it's it's there's that line that that uh, I don't know, it's like 300 years old, 200. No, it's not 300 years old. It's huh. it's at least 150 years old. Let's just say that uh, that the the, the greatest uh, asset to America, or I'm sure I'm butchering this, is is the ocean between us and the rest of of the world, and the greatest weakness is the ocean between us and the rest of the world, yeah. because God forbid we learn other languages and go other places and actually understand the fundamental uh, trends that are happening globally. But I think that's what's so um, what you just said that. Uh, I work in domestic politics. I've done, I speak foreign languages. I've done international work, whatever. With that being said, it's so much work mm -hmm. as an American because of our political system and, and also just the significance it plays on the global stage. But I think what you said was it, it's, even I struggle with this in understanding like, all right, so how is this linked? How is what we're doing? How is our, our, our fiscal policies? How is what's happening in Washington linked to what's happening with, the IMF and and it's by design, of course, that we're 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 we don't receive an onslaught. You have to really seek it out in terms of the news cycle. Um, but there is, I in this moment in particular, and I think what you guys have really tapped in on in your actual work, like real life work, is just our need to be responsible as a leftist in in the, in this country where you know very well 
there are leftist movements all over the world right now who are looking to us and using us as a model and the and the success and losses, frankly, of the leftist movements here. Um, they're using it as a model and working with us too, in some ways, to duplicate and replicate that in in their countries. Of course, it's not always doable, but I don't know if all folks here who are active understand the significance. And I mean, it's just, I know you guys are going to touch on this in the show, but like. Have you had instances where you're working with a party in a country? Um, let's not use UK as an example because I think a lot of us do pay attention. I mean, in this audience, pay attention to UK, but like say Kosovo or or Italy, probably even better, where they look to like an, the AOC campaign and they say, "Okay, we want to do that." Now, I think you and I both know the AOC campaign was kind of like lightning in a bottle <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but everybody's like, "Oh, we can do that." Right. Have you been able to kind of distill what works and what doesn't? And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's funny you bring up AOC. I mean, I guess it's not funny because she's just so uh, she's such a lightning rod at this point. Um, but, you know, there was a campaign we were working on in Italy for this woman, Ellie Schlein, uh, who was running in Emilia Romagna. And she was sort of getting billed as the AOC of Italy. And she talked right. a lot about a Green New Deal. So there is a lot of this, um, you know, American politics does sort of get translated um, wherever we're working, uh, just because we have there's just so much attention on U.S. politics. But that was also part of the reason that we started to really see um, how analogous all of these mm. um, fights are. Because when you're talking about a Green New Deal, you know we're very specifically referring to this this platform, this policy, and it's like people all over the world are like, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Like maybe we should do a Green New Deal. Uh, and it, it really got us thinking about like, okay, well, this shouldn't just be a national conversation. It should be a global conversation because this problem is global. We keep trying to solve it in this like very siloed way. And unfortunately what happens is, you know, um, one country will say, okay, well, we're going to have these more stringent environmental policies. Right. And then the multinationals say, okay, bye. Um, we're going to go to this other country that doesn't have that policy. We're in the exact same situation as before. And uh, so we're, again, like we're basically at gunpoint. You know, one thing that you hear from electeds a lot is they'll say, well, we can't do this because if we do this, then um, companies are going to move away. Right. And what they're essentially admitting when they say that is, we don't have democratic control over these entities. We don't we don't get to tell them what to do. They're telling us what to do. So that's like a, a tacit admission that wow. no, you you don't you don't get to decide that. We don't have any say. Like we we have no choice essentially. Um, so I think uh, you know democracy is such a hot topic right now. Just the concept of democracy in the last year or so, people have been talking about like our democracy is under attack. Russia Gate. Facebook, yeah. our democracy is under attack because of social media. And I think, you know, there are literally it's really, hearings right now happening as we speak on right. Capitol Hill. They're doing hearings on this. It's just really missing the forest for the trees when we're talking about, well, if we didn't have social media, then we would have democracy. And it's like, I mean, there's so many anti-democratic institutions that make it impossible for citizens to choose their own that you know we have no sovereignty basically over a lot of these major issues um and so i i think there's so much more to that? that conversation yeah yeah yeah. when you so say in, the the institutions that are not democratic um from a global perspective I mean, what, how, what do you if you can get into the gritty awesome sure. but if not you know, we can talk about it. On sure. The show. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so a great example, and I would actually love to have someone on the show to talk about this. I'm working on getting someone on to talk about this um, in the coming weeks. 
But a great example is what's called the ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Court. Um, this is right. something that very few people know about. It's, you have um, no idea. <laughs> it's what is a, this? The world's most secret, um, extremely powerful court. It is overseen by judges who are corporate lawyers. And the reason that the ISDS exists is that it was written into trade deals. So things like uh, the TPP, which did not end up passing, the TPP actually was going to expand the mandate of the ISDS, which is one of the reasons that people were very much against it. What the ISDS says is that, uh, so it's called the Investor State Dispute Settlement Court. What it says is that, let's say that I'm an, a multinational corporation and I make a deal with the government, like say a far right-wing government, like Bolsonaro's government in Brazil. And then let's say that Bolsonaro's out of office in a couple of years and Lula da Silva comes back to power. Um, and Lula da Silva says, I'm gonna shred these contracts. You know, like this was total nonsense where we can't chop down the entire rainforest for cattle or whatever. Uh, the multinational corporation can sue Brazil at the ISDS court for lost revenue. So they can say, okay, well, I'm gonna take you to this secretive international court that's overseen by corporate lawyers and I'm gonna sue you for a bunch of money. So this is just another way that democratic control over our resources is basically seized from the people and from um, our governments that we elect. Uh, and the ISD has almost always, always sides with the uh, investor, with the, the multinational corporate actor. So it really, it really discourages governments from trying to overturn any sort of previous agreement because it's like, well, we might just get sued for this money anyway. Wait, so so I have so many questions here. So who set up the ISDS? Who oversees it? What's the entity? I mean, there's got to be some so, sort of superior entity. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is we can get more into it with the experts. But uh, as I mentioned, it was first constructed through a series of um, international trade deals. So uh, when corporate actors sort of behind the scenes work with uh, conservative governments to write these trade deals, they can put in basically whatever they want. They can say like, okay, well, so what if this situation happens? Here's what here's what we think would be a fair solution. We're gonna have a, an international court basically. Yeah. Um, so the same way like the international criminal court isn't really subject to like one oversight, overseeing body, it's just sort of now under its own mandate. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the ISDS is a, is a pretty extreme example, but all of the global governing bodies actually are pretty anti-democratic. I mean, um, the IMF and the World Trade Organization and the World Bank, we really want to delve into where all of these organizations came from, uh, who, who is in charge of these organizations now, and how do they wield their power, and how do they essentially continually dispossess nations in the global south. Um, it's just sort of this much much nicer, much cleaner form of colonialism where resources and labor are still being extracted from the global south and sent to the global north, but there's just a lot more paperwork, essentially. <laughs> and, 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 and like, they're not killing 500,000 people in like a year just because they could. Yeah. Because that's like, because just, just men took a lot of 
I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll only do that if it's profitable at this point. I mean, like right. there's a, it's it, a bad it PR just depends move. what happens in the balance sheet, you know, <laughs> bad PR move. They, like, bad they PR, had a, bad PR. they had a nice little meeting with the neoliberal consortium in the seventies. And we're they like, like you know to, they like to barely, barely keep people, people alive. Now barely, you want to keep the workforce just like alive and running. Yeah. They just, it's, 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 it's like three steps removed from them. They're like, we don't give them health care, and then they die, but we don't kill them. Right. That's how it right. works. We work them to death, but we don't kill them. Right. Like that bad PR guys. It's just, it, they find the balance of just like the bare minimum of keeping the workforce like moving around, but no no quality of life at all. Not at all. Um, it's interesting you say this because we had uh, Stephen Donziger on this week, who is an attorney that has been under house arrest, arrest for 600 days. He successfully, in representing 30,000 indigenous uh, people in Ecuador, he successfully uh, was able to sue Chevron, um, who had taken over from Texaco in the late 90s. He'd bought te- Texaco. And uh, he's been, uh, they, 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 ha- they owe the Ecuador, the Ecuadorian courts, uh, decided that Chevron owes money and they will not pay. And as a result, Chevron in the States has uh, actively worked to push a RICO case, which uh, the judge who oversaw this was a judge that um, barely a step removed was connected to Chevron. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. And and, and this is inc- extremely unprecedented. Like we did this interview and I had a couple of reporters call me up who are not on the left, by the way. And were shocked by this story and said, yeah. are there going to be congressional hearings? And I said, I, 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 I'm guessing something's going to happen out of this. You have some Congress members who finally stepped up and, and signed letters and are calling this out. But to me, I mean, this is a perfect example of a situation. I mean, is this going to go to this court? Is it not? I'm surprised. As far as I understand, it hasn't. But um, I, I'm not an expert in this. But it, this, this to me, this this story is such a perfect emblem of like corporate power and, and they have a tactic, they have a playbook, which hopefully right. you'll get into, like what they do to disqualify anybody who is a, is in a position of power or authority in defending um, those who are victims of corporate, you know, crimes, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have a lot of tools in their tool belt in order to maintain the status quo. Um, and we really, as advocates of uh, progressive future, we have to sort of learn what those tools are and how they're wielding them and how we compete with them. Because right now there's really just nothing. I mean, there's nothing we can really do when people, uh, when multinational corporations are continually um, participating in this race to the bottom. So essentially going wherever the labor laws are the, the loosest, the environmental laws are the loosest, and just creating this atmosphere of all against all, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, there's no winners when that's, when that's the, the situation globally. Do you feel, um, you know, when you're working with leftist movements, do you feel that, that most of these, these organizers understand what they're up against and the connect? I mean, I know here we don't. Like, that's how I started off. Yeah. Like, we there are a lot of leftist organizers who work electorally, work in, in activism in, in their communities, but the patterns are like the same everywhere, pretty much, more or less. You know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really hard to get the full big picture, and for me and for anyone that studies it, it's always an ongoing process. I mean, even in the process of working on this show, it's been you know every day I've been learning something new because as much as I might know about Latin American politics. There's something happening every day. Uh, 
getting to explore in depth, you know, okay, what's happening in Ecuador, what's happening in Peru, what's happening in Bolivia. It's just sort of shown me like how impossible it is to know everything all of the time. We do have to sort of rely on each other for that. Um, I will say that, of course, in the U.S., we're sort of, as you said, you know, we're we're uniquely isolated. And I think that's not just a function of geography, but also, uh, you know, certainly our education system is really massively propagandist. I mean, to, to a degree that I think um, is hard to conceptualize if you haven't really started to dig into how badly misinformed we are. So I think that for like the average American, um, there's a lot of unlearning that you have to do first, because even if you're a progressive, you may be coming from the standpoint of like, okay, like, yeah, the U.S. might have done some bad things, but it was like a long time ago. And now like <laughs> we've pretty much been pretty good since like, you know, Vietnam might have been a mistake, but like, I think we mostly do good things in the world. And certainly our press does nothing, you know, does nothing to um, count contradict that that general worldview. I mean, um, the New York Times and the Washington Post are very much of the mind that, uh, you know, we are, if we interfere abroad, it's for people's own good and that's sort of our right as America. And actually there was a very funny article uh, in the New York Times last year, you know, they were talking about Russiagate and I was actually excited because I thought it was gonna be the first article I'd ever seen in the New York Times where they acknowledged like, okay, Russia might have like done some Facebook ads, but like the US also had, like we did, we interfered in elections sometimes, you know, like very quiet voice, like uh, we have interfered in elections in the past. Uh, and the article was actually just this sort of like, they acknowledged it. And then this was the, I remember the exact phrasing because it was so bizarre. Um, this was the analogy they used. They said, some might say, this is a very, <laughs> Very, very, very popular propaganda technique. If you ever say, yeah. if you ever see some, some people might say, <laughs> just substitute the author thinks. <laughs> some might say, so they said, some might say that Russian interference is like giving somebody poison, but American interference is like giving someone a, like a basket of medicine. And I was like, would, would some say that? <laughs> Very what kind of medicine? Strange. Yeah. It's a slower death. Let me just tell you. Uh, yeah. As we so, said, so the life-saving medicine of murdering socialists that we we love to distribute around the world. Um, that's that's definitely a, a tactic. Um, with that being said, I, I love that you bring that up because is there? How do leftist? I mean, organizers, and I know this. It depends on the country. How are they relating to us? right now like the biden administration i'm very curious yeah. like post trump what's what's the interpretation well i would say uh from the circles i've been running in people are generally um he's being pretty well received even on the left not not the far left i mean obviously you know if you're a communist you're not gonna like joe biden <laughs> but uh but i will say we'll save that for the of, second half of the show because the second yeah. half is all communist just if anybody ever calls me an msnbc propagandist i'd like you to tune into this show uh, because yeah, all, all Jimmy Dore, uh, I'm sorry, Earth to Jimmy Dore, I'd like you to watch this episode and come back and call me an MSNBC propagandist comedian. Oh, uh, well, so, so I think, hate. yeah, I think so much people, people who, <laughs> people who are, um, you know, working on the left, especially in politics, a lot of us learn. Oh, to, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Working on the left. You mean people who have, um, who actually do the work on the left have, yeah, have the right <laughs> to an people. opinion. Okay. Those got people. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, they tend to be a little bit more understanding of 
you know, okay, well, this is the, the political reality we're in. And um, I would say, you know, for me personally, it's just been a mixed bag. I think that he is exceeding my expectations and my expectations were very low. So I don't think that's a super high bar to clear, but I would say the biggest um, difference we can see between his administration and the Clinton campaign or the Obama administration is just that there's pretty clearly some progressives in that administration that are saying like, look, you gotta, you gotta make some concessions. It's not as much as we want, but I think that there are enough people in the room that are aware that the heat is on them, um, which is certainly something that we needed to happen. They need to be aware that like the left is a real political force at this point. Um, That being said, I mean, if we're talking about global issues, my biggest concern with Biden, as it always is with Democrats, is just that, as I was saying, you know, Americans don't know much about what happens globally. All U.S. presidents are extremely imperialist. So we've seen um, Secretary of State, incoming Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, He's already been tweeting a lot of really concerning stuff to me, you know, tweeting about oh, Bolivia, you know, they shouldn't be able to arrest Inez and uh, tweeting, obviously, about Venezuela. I th- it sounds like they're going to come for, you know, whatever we third attempt, fourth attempt to to get uh, Maduro out. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, just sort of this general attitude of aggressive, aggressive posture toward Russia and China. So. You know, I think from a global perspective, people are relieved that Trump is out. At the same time, um, when it comes to U.S. empire, there's really only bad and worse to the rest of the world. So I have a question for you, because this is something that kind of, it seems to come up a lot when talking about the global south. Um, even yesterday with 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 um, talking about Guatemala, like Venezuela oil. OK, we got that. We understand what the stake is there. Uh, Brazil, the Amazon, but I think what's confusing is Guatemala, like in particular, I'm just like, what is your, or, or, or there's other countries like this too. What, why, why are, why are we still going so aggro on it? I mean, it's not like it has to do with the Panama Canal's access or a military base that was important during World War II. I don't understand at this point, some of these are interference. It's all, it's all about the status quo, baby. I mean, like, I think, I think ultimately, like I can, I can draw an analogy for you that I think would be really comprehensible to people. Um, Look at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Why, are people nickel and diming us on these $2,000 checks? Why, why, Perfect. you know, we have we the money, yeah. why do it, you know? And and ultimately the reason that Trump and even Biden, why they're reluctant to use the power of the state to help people is that if people see that the mm. state can be used to accomplish collective goals, then they're gonna wanna keep doing it. That's right. And that's exactly the issue uh, that you see all around the world when they see socialist leaders popping up that wanna nationalize resources. It doesn't matter how small your country is. If you're gonna serve as some sort of um, example for other nations to follow, they do not want anybody getting away with owning their own natural resources. Uh, You know, obviously Cuba has been this enormous thorn in our side, even though it's this teeny tiny country, uh, but it just represents uh, us not being able to control someone and us not being able to say, no, you got to do it our way. Mm. So um, I think mm. in terms of, you know, when we see these countries electing socialists, electing leftist leaders, we're always going to see it as a threat because ultimately we don't want those those leaders to succeed because that will mean really massive changes to the global ec- economic system that we benefit from. I think I know what the answer is going to be to this. Well, I have a bet in my head. 
and I I should write on a piece of paper and see. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna okay. do it right now. I'm gonna this write is a magic trick and see if Three of I hearts. get it. Oh wait, that's not a pen. No, that's a pen. Okay, it was a straw, not a pen. <laughs> no one needs to see my work area. Here. All right, name. Tell me. I'm writing it down right now. Okay, just so. Tell okay. me a country right now where leftist leadership is in power and doing it right, or is coming to power and doing it right, or just where they they seem to be getting it and doing it right. Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> there's always something to criticize. Of leftists. course, but I mean, in, in, in terms um, of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would have said Ecuador, and now Ecuador has fallen completely to the right in this sort of like shock election, which is something that we're going to be discussing uh, next week, along with um, in Peru, sort of the opposite thing has happened. Now we're having a shock election of a left-wing president. Um, you know, uh, AMLO is a bit controversial. I think AMLO's in certain ways doing a good job, but he, yeah, he's more pro-business than I think we would like him to be. Um, what, what, did, what did you write down? Now I'm curious. I'm not even in your hemisphere. Man, I thought I was going to get this. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I always forget about New Zealand. New Zealand. It's like they're done. Just let them, <laughs> they're done. I don't need to worry well, about it. Well, I mean, yeah, they don't have the same, they don't have the same scenarios. I mean, but they right. do have Elon Musk and all these like Peter Thiel I do wanna, buying I do, up land. Oh yeah. No, that's true. There, of course there are still uh, major issues in New Zealand, but yes, absolutely. Um, are there very, very young uh, prime minister who has enraged everybody on the right? Um, Feminist. She's just done a fantastic or job, and especially with the COVID crisis. I mean, yes. really couldn't be more of a... I, one of the funny things about New Zealand is that people are like, well, well it's an island. And I'm like, well, uh -huh. how do you think most people travel <laughs> these days? Like, where, they're not coming in a horse and buggy, you know, like... <laughs> It's actually it more complicated really, on an island. Yeah. As I'm sitting on an island in the middle of the Atlantic, what was Donald Trump's quote about Puerto Rico? Um, surrounded by lots and lots and lots of water. Perfect example is Puerto Rico, an island situation in which, uh, you know, that's a Jones Act, that's a different shit. Um, all right, we can talk about this forever. Julia, next yeah. time you come back, let's talk about New Zealand because I feel like it's a Absolutely. very good Femme Friday topic to talk about her leadership, what she provides, what's, uh, you know, what we could model off of. I'm sick of using Denmark as an example. I'm just like, I don't relate to Denmark, but I might relate yeah. to New Zealand. Maybe. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think with a lot of the global north, more socialist countries, we just run into this issue of, um, you know, again, as we're trying to expand our leftism, is just sort of understanding to what degree our successes are dependent on the deprivations of other people. Yes. Um, and if I, I could leave you guys with, you know, one fact that I think is really crucial to understand as we're talking about global poverty. Um, you know, we're constantly hearing that global poverty is being reduced, it's being reduced, it's being mm -hmm. reduced. Um, the metric that is used um, by um, the World Bank and other organizations to measure extreme poverty is do people make less than $1.25 a day? That is an absurdly low number. Um, so if you look at how many people make less than $5 a day, it's close to half of the world's population. If you look at how many people make less than $10 a day, which is less than $4,000 a year, it's 80% of the world's population. So eight out of 10 people live on less than $4,000 a year. Um, and I think that that's a really great illustration of um, how massive global poverty is, one, 
and how little understood it is in the West, because I don't think most people would assume that, you know, when you turn on your TV, there's certainly these nods to diversity of like, okay, well, we're going to have people of different races. We're going to have people of different genders. We're going to have people from different parts of the world, but 80% of people never make it on TV. Those people who are making uh, less than $10 a day, they are never represented on CNN or MSNBC or in the New York times or in the Washington post, eight out of 10 people are never asked is capitalism working for you? The only people who get to have an opinion on capitalism are the people who are benefiting most from it. So I think that's really crucial to understand as we're talking about how do we build an economy that works Mm. for everybody. Well said. Julia, Thank you. very excited. Uh, Go check out the committee. It's a new show on uh, this channel. You don't have to subscribe because you're already subscribed. I mean, if you have to subscribe at this point, I'm going to have like a real problem with you. Um, You have social media too. So let's talk about the social media that you have uh, where people can follow the committee. Oh, yes. Um, So it's at, actually, I better double check, but I think it's- We'll put it in the information. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's at the committee pro- uh, and yeah, I'm sure it'll, it'll be in the on Insta- So Go to my Instagram. I'm like resharing stuff. Yeah. They're, they're doing lots of work. And then you were talking about what in your first episode on Monday? Oh, we're talking about quite a, quite a lot of things. We're going to be talking about, um, Italy, uh, the five-star movement. We have a Ooh. few experts joining us. Yes. We're also going to be talking about Brazil with Andre Pagliarini. He's a lecturer at Dartmouth of history and Latin American studies. So we're going to get into, Operation Car Wash, um, Lula's return to the political scene, and uh, the COVID crisis as well. So um, that, a couple of other segments, uh, we're going to have Ellie May O'Hagan from the UK joining us. Um, so yeah, it's going to be great. It's been on and, our show. Um, yeah, very much looking forward to it. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much, Julia Doubleday, part of the committee, the committee program launching Monday at 3 p.m., 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., guys. This is the real deal. We are giving you some fun medicine, anti-fascist medicine. Thanks, Julia. All right, uh, we will be really quickly back because once again, this is the week that I'm just talking to people forever, man. It's okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back. That was quick, huh? Yeah. It's because you know what? I am, um, I am, I, I have been drinking my CBD coffee. That's what's been going on. I realized my coffee dosage was a little out of control and I was going too fast, too fast. And I took Dorsey's advice because he's been drinking the CBD coffee. How did I hit my camera? My camera's a little off. Sorry, guys. Um, Yeah, so Sunset Lake CBD, you've heard me talk about it before. It is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They offer all types of products. They offer tinctures, gummies, salves, and the coffee that I'm drinking, all the help with stress, aches, and pains, calming you down. I get some great sleep with that tincture like deep sleep, like I don't, I, I, I've told this to you guys before, I monitor my sleep and I sleep through the night. I don't have those chunks of time in between where I'm like tossing and turning or turning the air conditioning on colder. It's a good product. It really is because I have tried CBD and I thought it was a gimmick. And then I got a great uh, shipment of Sunset Lake CBD products and I tried them out and it helped everything from my migraines, which are for real. And then I don't have to smoke pot because that can screw me up too. Um, 
So I smoke a little CBD and it helps out with my migraines, which is very helpful. And of course, so many other issues uh, that I face because I'm getting to that age where I've got lots of issues and thank God there's CBD and I'm not taking ibuprofen all day. But you know what else is great about Sunset Lake CBD? They pay their workers a real livable wage, a $15 minimum wage, and the employees own a majority of the company and on top of that all, they support independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The David Pakman Show, and The Majority Report. Uh, you can get fantastic uh, offer right now. They're offering 20% off of their products, your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. Use the promo code NOMI, N-O-M-I. It's 20% off of your entire order, sunsetlakecbd.com. Use the promo code NOMI, and they have new dog biscuits out, which... I am so excited to give Bijou because he's a neurotic mess. Uh, Bijou, my poodle, my poodle that looks like Bernie Sanders. Um, I've posted that, well, you can go check it out. There's a great little photo, photo of Bijou and Bernie Sanders looking alike, but he has some issues. And so he needs lots of CBD because he gets neurotic when we're not home. So just go check it out, sunsetlakecbd.com, 20% off of your order. Enter in Nomi. I feel like Jamie could join in on this because she probably knows this ad by heart. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. You're like having flashbacks. You're like, oh, God, more ads, more ads. Um, very excited to have our panel today. We have Jamie Peck, who is the co-host of the Antifada podcast. It is a family-friendly, satirical, impar- and I can't read my community podcast. I can't read my thing. What is it, Jamie? Give us the pitch because I can't read my own script. What's your script for the Antifada? What do you label it as? What's the description? You host a show called the Antifada. What is it? Uh oh. Have we lost Jamie? Hello. There she is. There we go. I was talking to her the whole time and I'm thinking she's. All right. In the meantime, Esperanza Fonseca is back. She is a member of a firm and she's a labor and policy organizer. A firm is a feminist organization, a transnational one. Here we go. Jamie, of all the people to know how to use Zoom at this point. Well, you know, I don't usually have this problem. Nothing ever just works the way it's supposed to. Never, never. This has literally never happened to me before where I get on Zoom and I'm like, why can't I hear? Get in my Zoom settings. Someone switched it the (gasps) night. I don't know. Someone's like messing with me to, to the wrong setting, but here I am. Fixed it. (laughs) <laughs> it's like some level of of uh, taking over. Well, thank you guys for coming um, on to Fem Friday. We love Fem Friday. And we love having you on. Uh, we have some really important things to discuss, like Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice, very concerned mm. about Joe Biden's announcement that we are leaving Afghanistan. Let's show that. Last night, uh, we reported that you had Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice talking privately to members of Congress and raising serious concerns about the Biden plan to pull out of Afghanistan. Remember, both uh, Rice and Clinton were secretaries of state. I think the intrigue here, obviously, is that Hillary has a different position uh, than Biden. She was an early and fervent supporter of of what of going into Afghanistan, staying in Afghanistan. And I think it speaks to this uh, lingering concern among a lot of people who've been involved in this issue over the years that the minute you get out, bad things could happen. Oh, interesting. uh, At being there. And Biden has basically come in and said, listen, everyone's been debating this uh, for now years uh, since post 9-11. And we're getting out and we're staying out. Girl, power. All right, guys. (laughs) 
Listen, if you have two ladies explaining foreign policy to Biden and explaining that it could be worse than what it is now, then, you know, it's solved. Jamie. Yeah, I still am aching for the chance to see a woman running, you know, at the helm of American Empire because they would do wars just so much better than a man would. Like, see, Biden can't war his way out of a wet paper bag. He's a feeble old man, you know? I'm waiting to see what uh, Kamala Harris has to say. Is it's going to be a girl fight between everybody? Esperanza? Mm, maybe. <laughs> As a woman, she's going to have to respond, you know? Yeah. Biden's going to be like, I can't, I can't respond to them. But famously, actually, Biden, I mean, listen, Biden has very problematic foreign policy, but there was this rift between Hillary Clinton and, and Biden, and he was a little softer, I guess, uh, in the war room in comparison yeah, no to Obama Hillary Clinton. as well. Yeah, it was Hillary Clinton who was really uh, the one ready to, you know, she, she, had, she had to run for president. She didn't want to be swift-boated or whatever they were going to do to her because she had to look strong in her pantsuit. Well, I consultant speak. I do think it's interesting that um, Biden is making this move and we'll see, you know, how real it is. But um, like the U.S. is a dying empire. It doesn't have the money to maintain it anymore. And the amount of profit that can be extracted from it is hitting a point of diminishing returns. So, you know, let's not give Biden any brownie points for that when it's probably something that's overdetermined by the machinations, the development of capitalism, as well as, you know, probably a decent amount of pressure from below to the degree that that's a thing. You know, the American people are losing their taste for empire. Yeah. Simultaneously, it's just like they can afford to, I don't know, fix the effing bridges and give people jobs and like give us it's like the the pandemic has basically pulled back the curtain where they're like, okay, actually, we can't afford some of these things. And we'll remember and keep pushing. But Esperanza, what's your take on this girl yeah, boss move? So, um, you know, I think that it's no surprise to any of us that Hillary is just this absolutely disgusting and vile warmonger. Um, but I, what I do want to say is that I think it's really important that we don't allow uh, Hillary's comments here to make Biden seem like he is somehow not a warmonger himself. Um, The U.S. still has the largest military budget in the world. The U.S. military is still the largest contributor to global emissions. Um, And uh, the U.S. military budget is increasing. It's not decreasing, despite the troops possibly moving out of Afghanistan. Not only that, but um, there's also no real criticism, uh, I believe, in the mainstream media over the fact that uh, private contractors, like military private contractors, will still be left in Afghanistan. And so I just think that uh, we as, you know, socialists or as progressives, we need to be uh, careful to not allow the different factions of the bourgeoisie uh, to drag us into their fights, because these are their squabbles, whereas our fight should be against the imperial system as a whole. Well said. It is nice to make fun of them every once in a while, though. (laughs) No, I mean, but it is, it, it, you're, you're 100% correct. And I, I, I think the frustrating part of this is, number one, why, why are they relevant? Why, why does Hillary Clinton, why does the Condoleezza Rice, why do they need to step into this situation? What, who are they doing the bidding for at this point? Neither of them have some sort of political motivations to run for office, as far as I know. I, it, it just seems, it seems like a strange political dynamic. And of course, the press has been baited. And, and that's, 
that's where we're having the argue, the conversation rather than the larger conversation that um, Esperanza just brought up. All right, let's shift gears just a little bit because speaking of, of militarized state, uh, the, the New York police, police union, um, which is one of the strongest and most vocal and, and the NYPD, of course, separate from the union, has its, its tentacles all across the globe in terms of global surveillance. Uh, people, I, I don't think most people understand that like the NYPD is larger than most militaries around the country. Um, so the police union lobbyists are working with uh, one of the mayoral candidates. Interesting, huh? So Sludge, one of our favorite publications, has come out with this today or yesterday, I believe, uh, that the NYPD union is working with Andrew Yang. It's being run by former lobbyists for the city's largest, the, the, the nation's largest police union. It is the third largest source of spending with policing corrections more than four times the amount spent on homelessness and housing development. I don't think we're surprised, but uh, we are a little over, what is it, it's April. We're, we're a month and a half away from the election. And I don't want to be like New York centric, but this is significant. Um, the city does have a large budding uh, progressive population, but the turnout for these citywide elections is abysmal. And so I think a lot of folks are fearing, especially with the new ranked choice voting, that Andrew Yang has a real shot. Um, and not only does Andrew Yang not know much, but like this is scary. So let's start with the New Yorker Jamie Pack and then we'll move to Esperanza because New York does influence the rest of the country and the globe. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that I'm surprised. I think Yang is a huge dumbass who just kind of goes where the wind blows. So, you know, to the degree that he was ever a libertarian, that's obviously gone out the window. Um, I guess it, it's sort of like he's trying to slot himself into this, um, you know, this New York party political machine, which is sort of interesting because, you know, he likes to play himself off like he's this new guy with new ideas and a fresh, fresh air, fresh air or whatever. But uh, I mean, I should say the, the New York City Democratic political machine is also bad. Um, but at least they have to, you know, make some deals with unions from time to time. Um, whereas Yang is just an outsider who's like full, it, it's going to be like full on neoliberal hell world, you know, outsource the, the MTA to Elon Musk type of deal. But um, uh, it, it doesn't speak well of what's going to happen. Like I, I just did an episode of the Antifada last week with a tech reporter named Edward Onwiso Jr. Um, and we went over some of the ways that um, technology and the tech industry and the security industry is merging with policing to make it even more oppressive than it was before um, under the name of, you know, better policing progress. Right. We're not going to uh, we're not going to have a wall on the border anymore. We're going to have a smart wall made out of drones and, uh, you know, robot dogs and shit like it's uh, none of it's good. It's interesting you say that because there is a candidate in the race that used to be a cop um, and he's the Brooklyn Borough President, uh, Eric Adams, who, you know, was his story is um, he's African-American. He when he was a kid, he was beat the crap out of his brother by a cop. And then his idea was, oh, I'm going to become a cop and reform it. Yeah, we're going to reform Some... the SS from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, though, it's literally it. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing because they really it's not just that they have bets on one. They have bets on many. 
And part of that is the, 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 just like Los Angeles turnout for these races is extremely low. So a lot of factors are, 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 um, at play here. Oh my God. Yeah. <sighs> and he, you know, his main competition just got me to Scott Strigger. So yeah, but he was probably anybody. like, he's yeah, obviously not. He was just like, a representative a of like resurgence of the, the democratic party politics. machine, just like I've been talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, yeah. what I was going to say was, oh shit. Um, <laughs> yes. Now I remember, um, I don't know that there's that much that we can do in the space of the mayoral race. Um, DSA declined to endorse anyone because they're like, we can't do anything with this. That said, I would certainly vote for Diane Morales because she's the only candidate who supports our um, initiative to defund the NYPD by half. That's three billion dollars of NYPD money that can be taken away from them and transferred to other parts of the state, which, well, having problems of their own are at least ostensibly more geared towards keeping people alive than killing them like housing, education, healthcare and whatnot. But um, uh, an area where I think we can make a bigger impact is the city council right now. DSA has six endorsed candidates for city council. I made some calls for Brandon West the other day and they all support the initiative. She to whatever, I have a whole thing. I mean, I mainly know DSA about member. Like my whole thing is like DSA, I mainly know about him through a defund lens, so I can't really speak to uh, the rest, the rest of his like... politics. Um, but like and, and I'm not sure what relationship this may or may not have to the project of building socialism, but it certainly couldn't hurt to have fewer cops on the street brutalizing people. So I figure it's worth a shot. On that note, sorry, Esperanza, we're going off on a tangent and I'm like about to debate something else. I, I, I strongly believe that DSA could make a difference in citywide races because of the low turnout and the ability to mobilize in specific targeted neighborhoods that there's a large, they could really make or break a, you know, a candidate. Um, but that's another conversation for another time. Esperanza, we're going to do a DSA strategy conversation. We should just do that. We should just like air out all of everybody's like frustrations with DSA. Be like, how do we fix this? How do we change that? Because I have a lot of opinions. Uh, Esperanza, yeah, what do you so, think of Andrew Yang? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, to me, it's absolutely no surprise that um, Andrew Yang, you know, is has these sort of like police union lobbyists working for him. I think that on a deeper level, this has to sort of show us uh, the bankruptcy of these democratic so-called anti-establishment campaigns, yes. which are always establishment. Um, for example, you know, there was just a, a number released that the entire Democratic Party, including the so-called progressive wing, uh, the party has uh, been the most united uh, since 1956. And so that really says something when we elect these so-called progressives, so-called anti-establishment candidates that are voting in line with the establishment they're allegedly fighting against. And I think that what that analysis would require would be a complete rethinking of an electoral strategy. Yeah. Because what I've noticed is that we endorse these candidates that we call socialists or progressive, and they get in and they simply run with uh, the so-called establishment. And with Yang in particular, I think it's really important to note that um, you know his so-called UBI that he throws around to sort of entice everyone to his 
his campaign, one, would only be a one-time payment per year, and two, would require cutting funding for homeless people, homeless services, and would increase money for police. So once again, I think that we have to be really critical of these so-called anti-establishment candidates, because usually it's a dress and they end up being very establishment in the end. I mean, bottom line, you have to follow the money. And I don't know why it's so difficult for folks to just like follow the money, figure out who's working for them, who are their chief strategists, who else do, do they work for, and also who are their main uh, donors. Uh, there's a non-starter for me in New York, and that's do you take developer money? Have you taken developer money? And have you given it back if you haven't? And have you changed your, your rule? I mean, have you rezoned your neighborhoods? Have you uh, police unions, at least three quarters of our, our our lawmakers in New York City have taken money or worked with police unions in the past. It's, it's it's fundamentally like, and simultaneously, there's a new batch of of candidates who've who've uh, popped up. And I think Esperanza brings up a great point. Like, what do we know about them? What track? Who is backing them? Who's actually backing them? Um, you know, ranked choice voting creates a whole other level of dynamics in these races, in which sometimes you'll have two candidates kind of back each other up to prop, to to push out other candidates. Uh, but you know, there's this. It encourages party. Um, we have two parties in New York. We have the Democratic Party and the Working Families Party. There's no Republican Party in New York. So it it there's a lot of power dynamics that go at play. So I think Esperanza is totally correct. Um, the system, the electoral system, at least in New York City, which is a new form this cycle, uh, breeds these kind of power plays. And I think we as, as activists and voters need to wise up to these strategies. Jamie, you got final thoughts? We got to wrap because Dorsey has to go get a second COVID shot. I mean, I can't wait till Yang puts a casino in the middle of Central Park and I have to, you know, bring my Bitcoin wallet with me to go like play the slots and maybe I'll win some health care that way. You don't bring your Bitcoin. You think your Bitcoin wallet. It just shows up in a hologram. I have no idea how any of this works. <laughs> Someone bought me some Dogecoin, actually, as a going away present. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And I should probably check on it because I hear that it's had a jump in value lately. You know, value being fictitious monopoly money or whatever that means nowadays. Dorsey says, check it, check it, check it. That's like when my my, my aunt gave me a... um. Uh, a government bond. Is that what it is? Government bond? I don't even know what it is. And I found out like 20 years later, because it was like a fifth grade, you know, gift. It was worth like $200. Free drinks. <laughs> Esperanza, final thoughts. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess my final thoughts are just that I think that there is so much to be learned from everything that's going on politically right now. And so I hope that all of us understand like the gravity of the moment and how our decisions will impact the very survival of our species, right? And so we have to take a sort of scientific right. approach to our political struggle. And I hope we're all paying attention and uh, learning from this. I love you guys. I love Fem Fridays. Dorsey's going to get a second uh, vaccine shot right now, so we have to cut it a little early, but have a wonderful weekend. Always a pleasure having you on. Me really too. grateful to you. You're amazing. And Thanks for having us. Always. All right, guys, I don't know if we're going to have the ability to do shout outs, so I will do them on Tuesday. But remember, and ladies, you should get on the show too, Jamie and Esperanza. We have a new show coming out on Monday called The Committee, and it is okay. international focused. It's awesome. I know both of you have a lot of opinions on, on global politics. So if you have a chance, check it out. It airs at 3 p.m. Eastern. Arun Chowdhury is hosting it with his team uh, in, in Europe. 
And I think on Monday, they're going to be talking about Brazil and uh, they're going to be talking. Oh, God, she just went over. Julia just went over all the just rewind. You'll see what she she's going to talk about on Monday. But it's a great show. Three hours long every Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern on our on our channel. So go check it out. Thanks, everyone. We will do shout outs on Tuesday. I promise. Dorsey got to get a shot. It's important. All right. Love you all. Stay in solidarity. Take care.